Good morning to each of you. Please take God's Word, the Bible, and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Last Sunday, I read the first 11 verses and preached on verses 1 through 5. Today, I'm going to read the first 11 verses again and preach on verses 6 through 11. And so follow along as we hear from God's word. I urge you to give it the attention it merits as I begin again in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This past week, I was at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was attending a conference. There is at Louisville Seminary a study group, I guess you would call it for lack of a better expression, known as the Andrew Fuller Center. Andrew Fuller was a famous Baptist preacher of centuries ago, and this study center organizes an annual conference. And the theme of this year's conference was George Whitfield. Well, George Whitfield is a figure who has interested me for as long as I can remember. And so I decided to take a couple of days, fly to Louisville, and sit in on these sessions. And boy, was I glad. They were fantastic. They were uh, a gathering of elite scholars in the field of George Whitfield. And I gleaned a great deal, a tremendous amount from them. If you're not too familiar with the name Whitfield, uh, you might want to get familiar with the name. There are lots of stupendous and marvelous biographies out there. Uh, The conference was held this year, 2014, because 2014 marks the 300th anniversary of his birthday. He was born in 1714. And I suppose, I don't think this is being too critical, I suppose if we were to get out there and take a survey here in Glen Rose and move up to Granbury and go all the way to Fort Worth across to Dallas, and we did a little survey and asked people, who was George Whitfield? 
We'd be hard-pressed to find too many people who could put two sentences together, say anything coherent about the man. And yet, here's an interesting little tidbit of information. He is one of the most influential figures when it comes to the history of the United States of America, George Whitfield. He is of paramount importance when it comes to understanding the American Revolution in the late 1700s, when it comes to understanding the spiritual revivals of the 1700s, when it comes to understanding the evolution, the development of American society in the subsequent century, George Whitfield is the man. He was an Englishman. Everybody was in that day, even this side of the Atlantic. They were all Englishmen. Some were Scotsmen, the ones who were really blessed, but there you have it. <laughs> Whitfield visited the colonies on at least a dozen occasions. Not two-week vacations. He would come for months, if not at times for as long as a year, and he would go on these itinerant preaching missions, if you like, proclaiming the gospel to literally tens of thousands of people gathered in the, opening, in the open air. And Whitfield was instrumental in a, an, what can only be described as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit designated as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. That word awakening implies what? Slumber sleepiness, laziness, laziness, apathy. And God used Whitfield in this historical event that took place in the 1730s, 1740s, known as the Great Awakening. Writing in 1701, Benjamin Keach, another famous instrumental Baptist minister, Baptist pastor, asked the following, and please listen to this, because it could have been written yesterday. Please listen to these words. Have profanity, blasphemy, immorality, gluttony, drunkenness, covetousness, and self-love ever been as prevalent as they are today. Oh, the good old days, you say. There were no good old days, folks. There is no such thing. There have always been bad days. And the Spirit of God chooses to work powerfully in the midst of bad days. He goes on and he asks, Has sodomy, homosexuality, ever been as notoriously and frequently committed as it is today? 1701. Is it not a wonder, he asks thirdly, is it not a wonder that God has not consumed us in his wrath? Um, there is nothing new under the sun, my friend. There is nothing new under the sun. You know, really, the great awakening and these stirrings of the Spirit the Spirit is like the wind. He blows whatever He wills. It is basically the only reason I preach. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, because I have this unshakable conviction that the Spirit of God works when He chooses, wherever He wills, through the proclamation of the Word of God. 
My hope today is not in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. My hope today is not in electing a bunch of Christians, although I'm not against that. My hope today is not getting prayer back in schools. My hope today really isn't in transforming society simply for the sake of transforming society and getting back to some golden era which in actual fact never really existed. My hope today is in the sovereignty of God. My hope today is in the powerful stirrings of the Spirit of God. My hope today is that God might be well pleased in these dark days as he was over 300 years ago to blow upon this land and through the preaching of his, uh, preaching of his word to instill again what can only be described as a great awakening. Here's the news bulletin. A great awakening does not begin nationally, not political. A great awakening doesn't even really occur in society. A great awakening in the first instance, in the first degree, has actually nothing to do with unbelievers. A great awakening is what? It's the church. May the church waken up. May the blinders be taken off. May the hypocrisy removed, the compromise and the apathy dealt with. And may the Spirit of God breathe again upon the so-called people of God so that there is such vitality and life that they can only describe it as what? An awakening. An awakening. Hear this. 1700s. It was a time of great moral decay. The historian J.H. Plum writes, Women hardly bothered with the pretense of virtue. For men, the possession of lovers and mistresses was regarded as commonplace, a matter for gossip but not reproach. Drunkenness was epidemic. By the middle of the century, 11 million gallons of poorly distilled gin, not to mention beer, were consumed each year in the city of London with a population of less than 500,000. I think we have problems. Wow. It was a time of great social decay. The historian Williston Walker writes, popular amusements were coarse. Illiteracy was widespread. Law was savage in its enforcement. Jails were sinks of disease and iniquity. While many of the rich indulged themselves, the ordinary people suffered terrible hardship. In cities, it was not uncommon for 10 people to live in one unfurnished room. Diseases such as smallpox, typhus, and dysentery were rampant. It was a time of great religious decay. Church was powerless to stem the tide of the moral and social decay. Why? The salt had lost its saltiness. Most Christians held to a form of godliness while denying its power. Many pastors were more concerned about their, their, their affairs in the world than their congregants in the church. Few offered anything but dry moralism and empty legalism. To a great extent, the fires of Puritanism, but a few decades old, had been extinguished. The Great Awakening, the Spirit of God breathing into that context 300 years ago, this Great Awakening began in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1734 as a feeble, wiry man named Jonathan Edwards began to preach, and don't miss it, and you'll soon see where I'm going with this, began to preach a series of sermons on the doctrine of justification. 
like wildfire. From here it spread to other towns and villages. In 1740, the revival flourished through the ministry of George Whitfield. He too, like Edwards, preached relentlessly the doctrine of justification. He comments, it is evident that by being justified, we are to understand being so acquitted in the sight of God as to be looked upon as though we had never offended God at all. The doctrine of justification. The impact was immeasurable. Numerous churches were awakened. Mission societies and evangelistic organizations were established. The entire Sunday school movement was initiated. The revival transformed society as churches woke up, encouraging a passion for social justice. There was a campaign to banish slavery. There was a campaign to reform prisons. There were movements to provide food, clothing, housing, and medical care to the poor. And on and on and on it went as American society was literally transformed from the bottom up through the preaching of God's word as the spirit of God accompanied it with power. The great awakening marked one of the most significant outpourings of God's spirit in the history of the church. And at the center of it all stood the doctrine of justification. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what the Apostle Paul has been proclaiming since chapter 3, verse 21 of this epistle. He has made it clear in the opening chapters that we are in deep trouble. That is an understatement, if ever I could be accused of making an understatement. We are in deep, unbelievable, unfathomable trouble. As we stand before God, contrary to popular opinion in our day, contrary to popular opinion in our day, God does not have sweet sentimental feelings whenever he thinks of us. We are the objects of his unbridled wrath. We are the objects of his unbridled fury. We are under sin. And we stand condemned in the sight of God. But Paul begins to celebrate this wonderful truth, again, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, that God is prepared. I have said this probably at least 30 times, and God willing, I will say it another 30 times before the end of the year. God is prepared. He is willing to change the verdict from guilty condemned, damned, if you like, to innocent. And he is prepared to change the sentence from death to life. He is prepared to justify the condemned sinner by grace. Meaning what? He does so without any cause in you. He does so without any cause in me. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, no inkling, no iota of anything in us that compels God to make us this offer. That, that obliges God to justify us. No, it is a free gift 
It is without any cause in us, without any question of merit. Secondly, God justifies. He is prepared to justify the condemned sinner through faith. Meaning what? We simply receive it. We simply accept it. We come, we arrive, and I use this expression a lot, we arrive sort of at an end of ourselves. We realize that when it comes to, you know, I I realize that when it comes to my relationship with God, this this isn't a two-way street. It's not that God is doing his his part and, and I am doing my part. It's not that I'm contributing something to my salvation. It's not that in any way that I must do something, say something, think something in order to obtain, achieve justification. No, it is simply me realizing that I am powerless. I can do absolutely nothing when it comes to this question, this great issue of justification. I simply receive the gift through faith. And Paul makes it clear what? That justification, God justifies the condemned sinner in Christ. Oh, this came out in a couple of our songs. I hope you noticed that. God justifies the condemned sinner in Christ. How? Because you see, God treated, God treated the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross as if the Lord Jesus Christ had lived my life. That's, all, that's what's going on there. God treated the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross as if, as though Christ had lived my life. In other words, all my sin is reckoned to him. All my disobedience is imputed to him. All of my rebellion counted to him and God dealt with him accordingly. And that's why we hear that cry, that gut-wrenching cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's something more going on here. God justifies the condemned sinner in Christ because you see, just as God treated Christ upon Calvary's cross as if he had lived my life, now in Christ, God treats me, Stephen Yule, as if I had lived Christ's life. And he reckons to me, he counts to me, he charges to me the perfect obedience And the absolute righteousness of Christ, whereby I now stand before God, and God declares what? I have changed the verdict. No longer guilty. Innocent. And God changes the sentence. No longer death, but life. That is the doctrine of justification. As you might well guess, that doctrine has what? Benefits laden with that doctrine, that glorious truth, that radical transformation of our legal status standing in the sight of God, there are blessings, benefits laden to it. In our text, Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul mentions how many? Seven. Last Sunday, we considered how many? Four. Here they are, quickly again, by way of review. Benefit number one, unshakable peace. Where do I get that from? I rip it right out of the first verse. Therefore, 
Therefore, consequently, for this reason, hence, since, use whatever word you want. It's causal. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here's what we've got. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. Christ has reconciled God to us. How? By bearing our sin and taking it away. Christ has reconciled us to God. How? By bearing his wrath and taking it away. So this is a change in our status, our relationship, our standing with God. Christ now binds together that which was formerly separated. Benefit number two, unfettered access. Second verse, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access Entrance is like a gateway by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice again, verse 2. We have, we stand. They're in what's called the perfect voice, if you like, in Greek, indicating what? That this is an ongoing, continual position in God's presence. That we now stand upon grace as far as God is concerned, and we have unfettered, unchained access to Him. As the Lord Himself taught us to pray, we approach God Almighty, our Father, who is in heaven. Benefit number three, unalterable hope. Right at the end of the second verse, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This life is not all that there is. As a matter of fact, this life is nothing in comparison to what is coming. God has promised his people, those whom he foreknew, and those whom he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, and those whom he then called, and those whom he then justified, those he has also glorified. It's a done deal as far as God is concerned. That a day is coming, a glorious resurrection, New body, new soul, conformed to the perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A renovation of the entire cosmos. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering. The eradication of all that is contrary to God. This is the hope in which we live, and it is an unalterable hope. And the fourth benefit is this, unparalleled joy. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Really, how is that possible? It is possible because suffering sets off a chain reaction. Look at it. End of verse 3. Knowing that, here we go. Suffering produces endurance. Single-mindedness. What does endurance set off? Verse 4. Endurance produces character, maturity, stability. It keeps going. There's another link in this chain reaction. End of verse 4. And character produces hope. Why? Because we see the evidence of God working in us. We see God's faithfulness despite our sinfulness. And this builds hope in us because we realize that all these good things are coming to us as God works in us and their confirmations that he will fulfill those promises he has given to us. And the final chemical reaction, if you like, in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us. Why? Because this entire process, this entire chain reaction is confirmation of what? As the Spirit of God works in us and applies God's promises to us, it is confirmation of the fact that God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now there are three remaining benefits Verses 6 through 11. I'm not going to number them 1, 2, 3. You do the math. I'm going to number them 5, 6, and 7. Number 5. 
Benefit number five, unconditional love. Look what we have in verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I'm in verse seven now. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Here's a great verse. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what I want you to do, and it's a little tricky, but I'm requiring it of you. Back up to the fifth verse and notice something. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love, first mention of God's love in this epistle. He's going to wax eloquent on this theme later in the epistle, but this is its first mention. Whose love is it? It's God's love. Whenever Paul uses that word, that name, God, in this epistle, he is referring primarily to whom? The Father. It is the Father's love. Notice what he goes on to say. Because God's love, the Father's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this epistle. He's going to come up again. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is the predominant theme in chapter 8. But here Paul introduces him. So God's love, the Father's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And now look at what he says in verse 8. But God shows his love, so there's the Father again, for us, in that while we were still sinners, now who's in view? Christ died for us. What do we have in these verses? It is the doctrine of the Trinity. And it is very intentional. Paul is emphasizing the fact that the source of this love is the Father. The means of this love is the Spirit. And the expression of this love is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit at the dawn of the old creation. You go all the way back to Genesis 1. There He is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the Father who creates by the Word through the Spirit. You fast forward to the dawning of the new creation. In the gospel narratives, as the Lord Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, emerges from the river, having been baptized. There he is, the Son of God incarnate. What happens? The Spirit of God descends in the likeness of a dove. And the voice of the Father rings true. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When we proclaim God is love, do you know what we're proclaiming? We're proclaiming the doctrine of the Trinity. The truth that God is love is nonsensical apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. God is love because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. God is love because the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Son. God is love because the Father loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. God is love. God loves himself. God is the object of his own love. Do you know what that means? It means he's perfectly happy. It means he's perfectly content. It means he's perfectly satisfied. Now, don't be offended. you know what that means? It means he does not need to love us. Oh, ouch. It means he doesn't gain anything by loving us. Nor does he gain anything by us loving him. Here's a wonderful truth. He chooses to love us. He chooses to make us participants of he who is love, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is the encouraging thing because this is precisely the kind of love we need. 
We need someone to love us who does not need us. Why? Because it means, my friends, there are no strings attached to his love. It means, my friends, that his love for us, some of you need to hear this. Give me your attention. Yes, you and you and you. It means that God's love for us as his children is not performance-based. It does not depend on how you were feeling when you got up this morning. It does not depend on what kind of a day you had yesterday or what kind of a day you're having today. It is his love which he freely bestows upon the object of his delight, all those who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he brings us into fellowship with himself, and we become participants in, we commune with God, who is love. And we have this unbelievable, I know it weighs so lightly on us, because we've heard it so many times, but here it is, and I pray it comes afresh to us. We have this unbelievable, simply wonderful, unbelievably mind-boggling expression of that love. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. When? That's the key question. When did he do that? Verse 6. He died for us when we were weak. Still in verse 6. He died for us when we were ungodly. Into verse 8, he died for us when we were sinners. Verse 10, this is wonderful. He died for us when we were enemies. Enemies. Oh, hear these words. His name is love. His nature is love. All his expressions, the expressions of the Lord Jesus were love. All his actions were love. All his words were love. He preached love. He practiced love. He lived in love, served with love, died for love. It was love that walked in our flesh. It was love that gave sight to the blind. It was love that gave life to the dead. It was love that was scorned. It was love that was rejected. It was love that was in a bloody agony in the garden. It was love that was pierced with thorns. It was love that bore the wrath of God upon Calvary's cross. I'd say that was a benefit of justification. God's un conditional love as expressed, revealed, manifested in an unmatched fashion upon Calvary's cross when Christ gave himself up for us while we were still rebels. We were still sinners. We were still enemies. Let's get right to the quick, cut right to the chase while we were still haters of God. Here's benefit number six. Untouchable confidence. We move into verses 9 and 10. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Notice the two words. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God... 
by the death of his son, notice these two words, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I'm a mess. Maybe that's running through your head this morning. I'm a mess. How can I be certain that God won't give up on me? I'm an absolute failure. How can I be certain that God won't change his mind? This untouchable confidence that you've just described, it seems so divorced from my experience, so separated from my mindset, so different from what I'm going through day by day. How can I be certain that God won't give up on me? Paul answers that question by presenting two arguments. It's easy to identify the two arguments. I've already identified them for you by honing in on those two words, much more. He uses the expression twice. He uses it in the middle of verse 9, much more. And so there's argument number one is framed around that expression, much more. He uses the expression again in the middle of verse 10, much more. And so argument number two, framed around that expression, much more. Two arguments, but you know what? Two arguments to make exactly the same point. He's only making one point. He's only got one one objective, one goal in these two verses, but comes at it from two closely related angles for emphasis sake. And what he's doing, and we do this all the time, we should be able to relate to this. What he is doing is simply this. He is arguing from the greater to the lesser. Do you get it? We do that. We may not be conscious of it, but we do it all the time. And so, for example, these are just a couple completely hypothetical situations to make sure we're understanding this. We might say, I don't know why we would, but here we go. Here's an individual. Here he is. He ran a marathon two weeks ago. What's a marathon? 26 miles. Therefore, I conclude he can walk around the block. It only takes about three minutes. If he, if he ran a marathon, if he can handle a marathon and did it in under three hours, 26 miles, ergo, arguing from the greater to the lesser, I think, he, I'm pretty confident, he can handle walking around the block, right? Or you take that as another example. This guy over here. Great mathematician. He has a graduate degree in mathematics. That's who he is. I'm pretty sure he can count the number of eggs in the carton. Are you getting the idea? They're absurd, aren't they? But Paul is trying to be absurd in these verses. He is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If the greater is true, if this is true, then please, it is what we say, a no-brainer. This too must be true. If this is what Christ has done, it's the greater. Oh, then please be reasonable. Certainly he will do the lesser. If Christ has already done this, accomplished this, achieved this, then this is a, this is a cakewalk in comparison. And so he makes that argument twice from the greater to the lesser. He does so firstly in verse nine. And his point is simply this. Christ saved us while we were God's enemies. Oh, how much more will he keep us saved now that we are actually God's friends? The second argument is this, there in verse 10. Christ saved us by his death. Well, how much more will he keep us saved by his life? It is untouchable confidence. If this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, And if we hold firmly to the golden link of salvation, as I've already cited it out of Romans 8, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That is the effectual 
calling, the sovereign call of God. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If we believe in these five indissoluble links in the golden chain of salvation, then surely Christ, having accomplished already the greater by his death on behalf of enemies, will now be able to see me safely home now that I am a friend and he is living. We sing it. And at times, I'm sure most of us really feel it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But he does not leave us. Our justification does not depend on our performance. It rests on Christ's performance. Our perseverance does not depend on our effort. It rests on Christ's effort. And our final and full salvation does not depend on our ability. It rests on Christ's ability. Untouchable confidence. And then it all comes to a crescendo. Verse 11. Look at what Paul says here. The seventh and final benefit. Unmatched blessedness. Unmatched blessedness. More than that. We also rejoice by way of reminder. Third time now he has used that expression. He used it all the way back in verse 2. At the end, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He used it secondly into verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now he pulls it out of his bag, so to speak, and he uses it for a third time. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice. Let me remind you, rejoice, it's too weak. It's not what he's saying. I was delighted. I'm always delighted when babies are born here at Grace Community Church. I rejoice. What did I do when Laura was born? What did I do when we traveled to China to adopt Emma? It was more than rejoicing, folks. What was it? It was unbridled, unconstrained, pure exaltation. That's what he's getting at here. We exalt. We glory. We revel in these things. The six benefits, I'm inclined to think there is no progression in thought. He could have given them in any order, although there is obviously some logical connection between them. But this seventh final benefit of justification, here you have the icing on the cake. He brings it all to a crescendo. The six benefits I have just mentioned, they are all encapsulated in this one. Here it is. More than that, we also rejoice, we exult, we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is a most interesting story. Well, there are lots of interesting stories, but this one in particular back in the book of Exodus. It is chapter 33. And the children of Israel are approaching the land of Canaan. And God speaks to Moses. He speaks to the people. And he says, yeah, on you go up to the land of Canaan, but I'm not going to go with you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an angel to protect you. An angel to protect you. I am going to give you, secondly, the victory over your enemies. You will defeat them wholesale. And you will inherit and possess and enjoy the land. Do you know how the people responded when they heard that? They mourned. Moses describes it, his words, as 
a disastrous word. I'm gonna, let's repeat it. I'm going to give you an angel. You know how powerful angels are? Yeah, we know. Not those little cherubs, chubby things floating around with the wings. No, an angel. I mean, you think of some of the deeds angels perform in Scripture. I will send an angel before you. I will give you the victory wholesale over your enemies. And I will give you the land. They weep. And Moses speaks on behalf of the people. If you, O Lord, will not go up with us, we will not go up. Understand this truth, my friends. Understand it well. It is better to be in the wilderness with God than in the promised land without Him. It is better, far better, exceedingly better. I'd use another word if I can think of one right now, but I can't. It is exceedingly better to be with God in the wilderness than without God in the promised land. We exult in God. We exult in his glorious grace in saving us. We exult in his glorious faithfulness in keeping us. We exult in his glorious power in quickening us. We exult in his glorious wisdom in transforming us. And far eclipsing all of these, we exult in the context in God's glorious love. Now, I'm going to speak very directly. I know I don't usually do this, but I'm going to be direct for a change. And I want to speak to you, Christian, believer. And I want you to exhort you. I want to exhort you. I want to compel you. I want to plead with you to make these seven benefits and the doctrine of justification your daily diet so that they might be your daily delight. These benefits will silence a disturbed conscience. All of us regret our past, even as Christians. All of us wish we could go back and change things. All of us think to ourselves, if only I could go back and do it over again, I certainly wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. But far too many of us live in the prison cell of the past. But the doctrine of justification and these seven benefits silence a disturbed conscience. More than that, they humble an inflated heart. They give us perspective. They remind us of who we are. They keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. More than that, these benefits ease a troubled mind. Yes, we live in a troubled world. No different from 1701. We live in a world that is marked by a mess and can only be described using all sorts of deplorable adjectives. And yet our hope is fixed where? Elsewhere, our reality is defined and determined by something else. And the doctrine of justification and these wonderful benefits ease a troubled mind. They help us to endure adversity. They help us to accept criticism. They help us to handle rejection. They help us to embrace hardship. And they help us to face death. Those who were here last Sunday, do you remember the picture I had up on the screen behind me? Muckrake, taken from book two of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. As Christiana, Pilgrim's wife, enters into the house of interpreter, 
And the interpreter leads her into that room where she beholds those two men, the first man with a muckrake, looking down, peering down at the ground, raking the muck, gathering what? Sticks and straws. Anything that he perceived might be of use to him. The second man standing just above him, close enough that he could reach out and touch him, offering what? A crown. Offering to make a trade. The muckrake for the crown of? Glory. That crown of glory, I think, is well represented in these benefits of justification. Christian, friend, do you look up? I mean, daily, do you look up? And do you really comprehend who and what you are in the Lord Jesus? Do you really understand, comprehend, and value what Christ has done for us? Have you tasted of the benefits of justification? And are these the source of your hope? And of your joy. And now let me speak directly to unbelievers. Because I know there are some gathered here this morning. You have heard the word of God. If you've been here for a couple of Sundays. You've heard something of these glorious benefits of justification. Hear my friend and I plead you to give it your full attention. Here again is what you must grasp. You stand condemned in the sight of God. Your condemnation does not await something future. You are already condemned. All you are waiting for is God to carry out the sentence. That's all you are waiting for. But God in Christ Jesus makes a wonderful offer. He is prepared to change that sentence from guilty to innocent. He is prepared to change it from death to life. And he is prepared to do that for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture sums it up wonderfully, beautifully, doesn't it? There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Will you respond? Will you repent of your sin? And will you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation? Our Father, we do praise you for your word, praise you for its clarity, and praise you for this wonderful message of hope that is found in the gospel, the good news of salvation. And our simple request now is that you would send forth your spirit, accompanying what has been proclaimed with power, that the fruit might be evident in each and every one of us for your glory, the glory of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ whose name we ask it. Amen.